Welcome to Women in Charge, a podcast about women who are in charge of things and the things they are in charge of. I'm your host, Allison Benedict, executive editor of Slate. This week, I'm speaking to Sarah Arrington, a district chief with the Syracuse Fire Department. Sarah has been a firefighter for 14 years. She was the first female captain in the department and is now the first woman district chief. Today, we talk about trusting the science versus trusting your gut in decision-making, the challenges of being a woman in a very, very male field, and whether team bonding matters when fighting fires. Thanks for joining us, Sarah. Thank you, Allison. It's a pleasure to be here. So tell me, what are you currently in charge of? I am a district chief in the Syracuse Fire Department. And uh, so we're a 350-person department, and it's divided into three geographical districts. And I am in charge of one shift in one district that's on the east side of our city. So I supervise five companies, and two, three engine companies and two truck companies. And it's uh, 20 people, 20 firefighters. Explain to me the chain of command and where you fit in. The top of our department are two appointed positions, the chief of fire and his first deputy. Below that are five uh, deputy chiefs, and they each manage a a different area of the department, like fire prevention or training or maintenance. And below them are 14 district chiefs. I'm one of those. And we supervise kind of the day-to-day operations of the fire department. Uh, We respond with companies to emergency scenes, and we also um, oversee some administrative uh, company-level things and uh, make sure they're meeting training requirements and other other assigned tasks. You went from being a captain to being a district chief. How how are those jobs different? Uh, So when you're the captain, you're part of a crew of four people, and you're actually riding on the fire truck with with that crew, and you're doing the physical labor of, you know, pulling hoses into buildings or taking care of patients. When you become a district chief, you're now alone, and it's much more cerebral rather than physical. You're in kind of in charge of a whole scene and overseeing a, a variety of companies, not just your three crew members. Take me through a day. I'm sure there isn't a typical day, but if you if there if there's a you know a couple of variations, but take me through what a what a day is like in your job and what are the things that you're thinking through. Okay, well, I mean, one part of my job is just making sure that I have the right number of people every day and and handling staffing, but uh, I mean, the most important part is when we go on alarms. Uh, we have a. a a standard operating procedures. That's kind of a, a guidebook to how all of our calls are supposed to operate. Like if you go to an alarm activation, it's supposed to go in a certain set of steps to investigate it. Um, so like uh, if three or four companies go on one of these alarms, it's my job to make sure that the call goes smoothly and everyone's doing things according to our procedures and to make sure that a situation is resolved and safe by the time we leave. So because there's such a strict sort of standard operating procedures that you, I'm assuming, didn't come up with and that are sort of universal, or you tell me, are they universal across um, fire departments? No, each department develops its own. So ours are have kind of evolved. I mean, they're probably very similar to what other departments do, but they are our own procedures that we've developed. And it's in a big manual 
So you spend a lot of your, your early career learning all the rules. And then, you know, as you progress and become an officer, it's your job to, you have a little more leeway, like when a situation fall is a little different than what is in the SOPs, you have to decide how you're going to resolve it, a call. So, and, and it gets more and more uh, responsibility that way as, as you go through the ranks. Can you give me an example of a, of a call you had to make that sort of went outside of standard operating procedure? Okay, so when we get a reported structure fire, it'll come in, you'll hear, we, usually there's one beep over the radio, but if it's a reported structure fire, you'll hear two beeps. And they dispatch immediately, like, a group of companies and a district chief, and and I'm the person in charge at the beginning. So they tell you what you've got, you know, a, a two-and-a-half-story two wood frame house with a fire in the kitchen the building is not evacuated. So we're all rushing there. And sometimes you'll get more information as you're you're going. So if they suddenly say everyone's reported out, like that might, you know, suddenly it's a little less stressful because you don't have reports of people trapped. But then once you get there, you know, I have to make decisions based on what I see. Like you get there and it, you hear it's a kitchen fire, but all of a sudden you see... Maybe there's fire coming out of a basement window or smoke coming from a basement window. So it's my job to make sure that we figure out exactly where the fire is, talk to people and see if there's anyone reported missing and make sure that uh, the crews are using the right tactics to to put out the fire. Like if it's a if it turns out it's a basement fire, you don't want to be rushing in to the first floor. You want to try and attack the fire, change your your strategy and attack it in the basement. And the chief is looking to you to tell him or her, I'm assuming mostly him, uh, that strategy? So we get there and if it's a small fire, I might stay in charge and I determine the strategy of how we're going to fight this fire. If we we call it a signal 99, if it's like a big fire, like the kind you see on TV with fire like blowing out of windows. And then uh, one of the deputy chiefs will show up and I become kind of in charge of tactics and he's in charge of strategy. So then he would decide, are we going to stay in and fight this fire or has it become too dangerous and we need to back our crews out and fight it from the outside? So the way I fit into it is once it's a, re- a big fire, uh, a signal 99, a, a working structure fire, then I kind of become in charge of making sure the tactics are achieving the strategy that the chief determines. If there's a big fire, there are people inside, but you're also the balance between getting the people inside out and protecting your own firefighters. Like, how, how I'm sure that's the, well, I don't want to assume anything, but I would guess that that's one of the toughest decisions. It is. I mean, my primary job is the safety of my people. So I go on every call with I want to make sure that we're safe first and foremost because I want to send everyone home to their families at the end of the day. That's my most important job. And so every call you do a risk-benefit. If there's not a lot to save, then you don't risk a lot. But if, you know, reported people trapped, then we'll risk we'll risk our lives for that. But I don't want to risk my crew's lives for a vacant building or just some property. You know, we risk a lot to save a lot. We risk a little to save a little. So that is, you know often my my decision or I participate in that decision. Tell me about your first fire. 
<laughs> my first fire. Actually, I was the first person out of my fire academy class to have a fire. And I'm happy to say that house is still standing today. <laughs> um, I mean, when you come out of the academy, I got assigned to a slow station, but you still, when you're, you're right out of the academy, you feel like every call is going to be a giant fire. So like I'm sitting there, we're eating breakfast, and I'm so ready. I'm so ready for a fire. And uh, the double tones go out, so it's a reported fire, and we all know. And then all of a sudden, they say my station, like my company, is, it's in their district. Like they're the first ones that are going to be there. And I just remember looking around the table, and everyone's fork is in midair, and my boss just goes, oh, my God, it's us. Like they're, <laughs> they're not expecting fire every second like, they, like I am. But, uh, you know, we all jumped in the rig, and we get there, and, you know, it's the classic beautiful fire like you see on TV. It's like blowing out of two windows on the second floor. And, you know, I just do exactly like they teach me in training. I march in, I march up, and I, I put this fire out. And it all went really smoothly. But I just remember my, my boss being like, oh, Sarah, you don't know how good it is that it went like that. And I, to me, I'm thinking, like, what's the big deal? But, you know, he's, he's like, everyone was watching to see how you would do, you know. And I think that's the first time I realized, like, how much scrutiny and pressure I was going to be under. Like the whole city was watching to see if I was going to fail or I don't know what they thought I was going to do, run away screaming or start crying or what. But the fact that I just went in and, you know, sprayed water on this fire, I, it seemed to, I passed some kind of test at that moment. Are there certain kinds of fires, whether it's like the location in the house or um, I guess the the type of structure itself that you're like, Oh, few. <laughs> this is, I mean, I assume smaller is better than bigger, but other than that, like, are there certain kinds of fire that you feel, I guess, more comfortable with? Our department really excels at putting out a residential house fire. We call it kind of our bread and butter fire is a two story wood frame house with maybe a partial attic. Um, we are we are so good at putting those out and rescuing people from those and it it just runs like clockwork like often i feel like i just i barely have to do anything other than watch my guys put these fires out the scary ones i mean first you get the dreaded middle of the night fire where you got reports of people trapped that definitely gets your adrenaline going and the other set of fires that are really are the unusual buildings, like a big commercial building or a big apartment building where there's a lot of, of potential for people to be trapped. Uh, a lot of the newer buildings that are being built, are they use different construction materials. Like an older house will stand up a long time and burn before it collapses, but new buildings are being made with lightweight construction and they actually collapse pretty quickly. So you sometimes have to adjust your your strategies with uh, with those kinds of unusual buildings that aren't our bread and butter fires. Are you still sleeping at the fire station? I am. I have my own office, got a little bed in the corner and a desk, and not a whole lot else. Okay, let's take a step back for a second. Why firefighting? Why is this your career? Oh boy, that's a long, strange story. I'll start at the beginning. I was raised in a kind of white-collar family. My mom worked most of her career at Planned Parenthood and Development and was a, a very ardent feminist. 
Uh, my dad was a college professor, and you know they raised me to believe I could be anything I wanted to be, and they never pushed me in any particular direction. They kind of let me just, you know, just decide what I wanted to be. They didn't push me toward any particular college, but I always, as a kid, thought I'm definitely going to college, and I'm probably going to have some kind of white-collar job. So I went to grad school for history, and as I got into that, I started feeling a little dissatisfied with it. It was kind of lonely work, and I didn't really enjoy teaching. So I became a reporter, and again, I started feel, feeling a little dissatisfied with that. I just I didn't enjoy invading people's privacy like you have to and waking up on a Saturday morning and finding out you had to go cover a horrible triple murder. I didn't enjoy that. But what I did love was going to cover fires. I would go to these scenes and watch these firefighters doing their job. And it I, I just looked incredibly fun to me, like the teamwork of it. And they, I know they're, they're dealing with a terrible situation, but they looked like they enjoyed their work. So I happened to be standing next to a, a volunteer firefighter, and I told him it looked like fun. And he almost immediately had an application in my hand for my local volunteer department. And the rest is kind of history. I got on the list and eventually got hired. How much is your job now? You talked a little bit about sort of the camaraderie, you know, earlier in your career feeling maybe a bit of loneliness. And uh, I'm assuming there's a lot of camaraderie in in the work you do now um, and also just like the the fun and physical aspect of it. How much how far removed are you from that now that you are a boss? I mean, I'm not as close to things, but I still, I visit my stations every day. That's part of what I'm supposed to do. So, you know, I get to catch up with them and we talk about, you know, what they're going to be doing that day. We talk about fires that have been happening around the country because I've, I've got a lot of very curious people and they read the news and when a big fire happens in some other city, we'll talk about it. So uh, we sit around and, and talk about that. We, uh, fire, I still eat at the firehouse. So cooking meals is a, a big it's it's like the glue of fire department culture. You know, they say a lot of problems are solved around the kitchen table. And I, so I, I really enjoy that I still get to to sit and and have dinner with my coworkers. Um, but I try to give them space. I mean, no one wants a chief that, like, is always there listening to you. So, you know, I, 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 I try not to, to crowd them. But I do like uh, at shift change, you know, that's another time when we sit around and talk and and shoot the breeze and tell stories. Uh, so I do enjoy that. So when firefighters are all sitting around talking, are they? Are you guys mostly talking about fires? Like, were you talking about California? Or it's everything? <laughs> it's everything. I mean, during the, my visits to the stations, it is, you know, we try to focus on work-related discussions and, and what's going on in the department. Like, there's a meeting every day with the big chiefs and... So they'll give us information that they want us to convey back to the stations, and the firefighters are always really interested to hear. I'm kind of the conduit between the top brass and what's going on, like long-term planning type things. I bring that information back to the station, so they're always, you know, interested to hear about that. But uh, but at, at dinner and uh, at shift change, it's often, you know, that's when we really we tell stories and joke around. Okay, let's talk a little bit about how you manage, because I think I think a lot about how to give, 
you know, constructive feedback, particularly when things aren't working at work. Um, I just saw a piece on Slate last night that I didn't really love, and I was wondering if it would be worth it to email the editor and pass along Mm -hmm. my thoughts. But I would imagine in your job, you don't have the luxury of wondering. The stakes are pretty high. So how do you approach feedback, particularly negative feedback? I mean, you usually notice that there's a problem if you go on a call and it doesn't doesn't run as smoothly as it could. Or so you might I I might sit down with them afterwards and be like, I try not to to place blame because everyone makes mistakes. And I kind of present it as a learning opportunity like this didn't work as smoothly as it could have. Let's go over how it's supposed to work according to our standard operating procedures. And, you know, here's how I'd like to see it go next time so that it will go smoother. So there's that. And also, you know, other people make mistakes or or things don't go as well as they like other fires in our department or you hear about it happening in some other part of the country. So kind of preemptively, you'll be like, oh, this thing happened over there. Why don't we, you know, check? our building and make sure that we aren't going to face this problem if we go there. So to try and get ahead of problems before they, you know, get significant. Is it hard to determine sometimes where the problem is? I, I'm imagining like a, not chaotic, I guess, but very busy, uh, loud scene when you go to a fire and just seeing sort of the scope of what's going on and being able to later think about what could have been better? Um, how do you do that? Yeah, I mean, it's often if if people get really excited and they and they'll skip a step and not be methodical enough. Like sometimes, if you have a, a high rise, like say they forget to open the fire panel, which is you have I have to be able to push buttons on it to reset the alarm or to make it stop ringing. And you know, if they if they take off with the keys. I'm, I, I can't work this panel. So it's stuff like that where, you, you know, you, like, take a step back. Guys, I know you're in a hurry and you want to, like, get up there and deal with this, but we need to take these steps to make sure the whole thing goes smoothly. So, I mean, that might be an example of, of something where, you know, you're trying to, to calm the chaos. Are people who um, aren't team players, do those people ever go into firefighting? <laughs> uh, yes, and that can be, that can be tough. There's a tendency to kind of sometimes firefighters want to pick on someone like that, you know, and like if someone doesn't want to join in on dinner. It's, but I try to respect like if someone you, you you just make sure everyone knows here's the standard we have to meet. And, you know, we all enjoy hanging out and talking. But if someone chooses not to do that, as long as they're meeting the standard, you know, try and respect their desire not to be as you know, as much of a team player, you know, focus on performance rather than the person, like if someone has a difficult personality. Sometimes that's the bar you have to reach. Do relationships impact the the work? Honestly, I think when we get on the fire ground, we all, like all that gets put aside and people just do their best. And that's where we shine. It's often the the jobs around the station where people have conflicts, like one shift saying that a different shift isn't cleaning properly or, you know, isn't didn't change the batteries at the right time or didn't didn't mop a particular area. That's a lot of conflict is over little things at the station. How much of the job is sort of not actually being at the fire? <laughs> a lot of it. Yeah. I mean, we, we come in and we've got there's a whole set of chores and training and paperwork that has to be done. And that 
is that's a lot of our day is preparing for the fires. Like some days you will run from call to call and never stop. But there are some days where you may only have one or two calls. So, I mean, the call volume varies. The daily chores and grunt work around the station is pretty much the same every day. What do you think of as your or as your um, colleagues' measure of success? Like, is it as fundamental as success is that no one died in this fire? Um, Or are there a bunch (laughs) of different metrics? Well, success is showing competency at training. Like, we we do all kinds of training where people have to show that they can, you know, they can stretch a hose line a certain way or they have to be able to get water out of an engine in X number of minutes or put a, a... Some of our trucks have a big ladder and a bucket, like put that and get it in position in a certain time. So there's those kind of standards. But really being able to resolve a call successfully and efficiently is is the standard. I mean, if people are able to resolve a call and also, you know, we expect them to interact well with the public. So, I mean, that's really the measuring stick. When you talk about sort of the training and the things that um, firefighters have to be able to demonstrate that they can do – how much of that is just, like, pure physical ability? It requires a considerable amount of strength um, and also some technical skill. Like, there are sometimes people that are strong that don't have a lot of mechanical ability, so you work on being both strong and able to do mechanical tasks. Um, rescuing people is heavy work, and, we, you know, we practice rescuing uh, like pretend victims, we have a, a bunch of dummies, but also rescuing each other. And there's all kinds of like specific types of rescue, like rescuing someone out of a window or taking someone up or down stairs. And you learn all these different tricks on how to do that. And it, and it can get very physical. I'm curious to hear you talk about if uh, being a really great firefighter makes you a great district chief. Like, are those skills the same? There is a lot of overlap, but... To be a, a good district chief, you have to be decisive uh, and willing to, to make split decisions. There are a lot of people who I, I think, a lot of firefighters who are pretty satisfied, you know, just being in their groove and, and being the best driver they can be. Or, the, you know, they don't want to make the decisions about when is this call over? Or when, how do I decide risk versus benefit of this fire? They just don't want to to do that level of decision-making. And also, uh, it becomes more and more administrative the higher you get. Like, I have a, a lot of paperwork I do, and a lot of firefighters really don't like doing paperwork. Do you like paperwork? I do. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I, I mean, I come from, a, I went to school for 30 years and then became a reporter. So, I mean, things like knowing how to do Excel, like, that can be a real struggle for for some people where they just it's not a requirement to get hired so the guy who can they might be able to build his house from scratch but you ask him to do like a a three column excel spreadsheet and they're just ripping their hair out how does hiring work at the at the firehouse level well new york is a civil service state so every 2 to 4 years there'll be an announcement that there's going to be a firefighter exam and it's a multiple choice test and you, you go take this test, and it's supposed to be kind of just to test your general ability to think. Like, it's not firefighter-specific questions. So the results come out, and they've, they've got to pick 
from the top scores. So they have some leeway to pick, but you've got to start with the top scores. Uh, and each level you promote to it, it's the base. The beginning of it is a multiple choice test, which is it's good and bad. I mean, there's a lot of of skills. There's a lot of people who don't test well who would make fantastic chiefs, and it's kind of sad to see them just not able to reach that because they aren't good test takers. But I, there is some correlation between having the self discipline to study for a test and you know, being able to learn the skills you, you need to, to be a, a district chief. How much is diversity, whether gender, and I want to get to that in a little bit, but um, mm-hmm. gender, racial uh, diversity, an active issue in firefighting? Uh, it's very active. Um, I mean, I, I know that at our, our highest levels in city government, there's a lot of desire to have diversity in the fire department. But you have to Going out and recruiting people to take a test that only happens every couple of years is is kind of difficult. So they'd really like to have a lot of women, but finding women who want to take this test and then wait around for several more years to see if they get hired can be a challenge. And firefighting is a job. A lot of people get interested in it by being exposed to a family member or someone they know uh, who's a firefighter. And when I first started, I just remember thinking, oh, you know, if, if these guys would recruit their own family members, there would be a lot more women. But they they would like I'd ask guys, would you want your daughter to do this? And it was almost always no, never, never. That would be terrible. But because it's dangerous, it's dangerous. And it's a it can be a rough environment. And the, the guys can be could especially in the past could be pretty rough. And I think they didn't want their daughter's in that environment. And there was a lot of resistance to women early on. I mean, there's still there's still some, but the younger generation, I think people are, the environment's a lot more welcoming of difference in the fire stations now. I mean, I can feel it with these young people coming on. There's a lot more acceptance of, I mean, not just like race or gender diversity, but people with different interests and things they enjoy doing off-duty. We have some gay and lesbian firefighters now, and I'm kind of amazed how welcomed they are. It's been impressive to me, that the the new people coming on, how, how they are. How did you yourself deal with the rough environment? People were not openly rude to me, usually. I think because I was a reporter, they, for a long time, people thought I was, like, secretly writing a book <laughs> or some kind of spy for the newspaper. So I think... <laughs> That kind of protected me a little bit, like. But uh, I enjoy rough humor, and so like the stories that would get told, I I didn't mind. I kind of enjoyed listening to people's stories and and kind of the, some of the locker roomish talk. I'm sure I didn't hear anything like the worst of it, but I enjoyed that kind of uh, roughhousing environment. I developed a thick skin. Like most of these guys are were basically good guys, and if they if they said something kind of inappropriate, it was usually. It, I always, I often felt it was out of ignorance rather than malice. So I, I, I'd give people the benefit of the doubt and, and pick my battles. Like, you know, if someone just said something offensive, I'd, ha- I'd think about like how offended am I? And, you know, sometimes I would just be like, yeah, they didn't mean it. Or, or if I really felt like I needed to say something, I'd just address them directly. And then people were usually very, they're very afraid of, of women coming in and then they would somehow inadvertently offend them and the woman would get them in trouble with their bosses. So I found that if you like just talk to them directly 
or just reassure them that if you manage to offend me, which is difficult because I have a pretty thick skin, I will come to you directly. I'm not going to like somehow jam you up with the bosses. Um, So that's kind of how I approached it. When you started, was there like a separate space where you changed or was it like, oh, (laughs) (laughs) okay, so this is one of the battles I did pick. When I came on, the, the facilities issue was one of the biggest ones. We only have a, had a few stations that had specific female quarters. Uh, a lot of them were just like big open dorms and locker rooms that were just like in the middle of everything with no doors and toilets with no doors. And so, I mean, personally, I'm happy to share those spaces with them. I'll I'll go change in a, in a closet somewhere, but... It was more that the guys were uncomfortable having me in those spaces with them. So I got assigned to a new station that was very quiet and far out in the city. And I, it was very slow. So I, I, I was kind of disappointed because I wanted to go to this station that did hazardous materials, which is like a specialty in addition to being a busy, exciting engine company. And they told me I couldn't go there and uh, for a variety of reasons. And one of them was just that they didn't have female quarters there. And, you know, at the time I was like, okay, I'm not going to fight this battle now. And I I went to the other station and I I really enjoyed it and I met great people, but I always kept in mind that if I want to advance in this department, like I can't be limited to like only being able to work at three departments. So when I did get opportunities, I would push that issue. Like you guys have to do something to make yourselves comfortable having women be at every station. And, uh, Eventually that happened. They've put up, I don't, they've done all kinds of things like hang curtains or build a door so that you can have sufficient privacy that, uh, to have men and women working together. So now that you're at a higher rank, are you actively thinking about that? How to make it a more comfortable and potentially attractive (laughs) uh, place for women to work? I mean, I'm always spreading the gospel and trying to get women to be interested in firefighting. But, I mean, I, I feel like we've done what we can with the stations and the, the job is what it is. But I just try to, if I meet a woman, especially, I, I joined a CrossFit gym and, and there's some ferociously fit women in there. And I've always like, hey, why don't you think about firefighting? Because I, but, you know, I, I, I don't want to push people too hard toward it because I feel like you kind of have to, decide for yourself that it's what you want to do. I think, I don't know, I wouldn't want someone to get into it and not know what they're getting into. Do you think you have had to think about gaining your colleagues' respect in a way that your male counterparts don't? Oh, absolutely. That's, I mean, that's for sure. I think I've been scrutinized every step of the way, and my mistakes are scrutinized more, and there's just, it's just everything. Like, being a chief, I feel like a I'm probably being watched more carefully and with more skepticism. It, you just stick out when you're a woman. And they've never had a woman boss before, so I don't know. Over time, though, I, I feel like I work really hard. I study really hard. I I always try to do my best, and eventually people get used to you and accept you if, if you're willing to show that level of effort what is the if you if there's like a you know you go on a message board for firefighters what are the like hot button issues that are being discussed i mean there's a whole uh science of firefighting that's developed where they uh they try to 
You know, when you like, if say you have an electronical item and it, there's a label on it that says Underwriters Laboratories. Have you ever seen one of those? Yeah. So there's a place called Underwriters Laboratories, and they're like these fire engineers, and they they have an enormous warehouse, and they build a house inside it and set it on fire with all kinds of thermostats. So they're trying to test ideas about firefighting. Like they're uh, there is this idea that you, if you spray water into a fire, you'll push the fire in a certain direction. And and these scientists, they're, they're fire engineers, they're like, well, we're going to test this. And they're they're arguing that you don't actually push fire anywhere. That uh, there's all kinds of like, very these very technical things that we're arguing about between like that's kind of the hot button. One of the biggest hot button issues right now is is how much to uh, adopt the, the scientific studies of firefighting compared to kind of the art of firefighting that's developed over, you know, hundreds of years of, of experience. I mean, someone like me, who I, I actually, I minored in chemistry and I have kind of a scientific background. So I'm, I'm like fascinated at the idea that you can test all these like long held ideas about fire behavior scientifically with these, these huge experiments. Like right now they're a uh, they're doing one where they've got pig skin and they're they're like making a fake victim and seeing how these new their fire techniques affect victim survivability based on the temperature that this pig skin gets to it. I mean it's really fascinating and in another another life I almost wish I had done something like that. But uh so I mean that's very appealing to me but you've got a lot of people who I mean have been to thousands of fires and have so much experience. And when these pointy-headed nerds challenge some of these long-held beliefs about fire, they, they get into some tremendous arguments. What is what is a long-held belief about fire? I mean, firefighters pride themselves on being aggressive. And a big thing is, like, we go inside the building to put the fire out. Like, And, and my department's very much this way. Like, we... We we are going into the building with our hoses to put out this fire, no matter what. But uh, there's this new science which is saying, hey, maybe you stand out in the yard and you spray your water through the window and put it out for a while like that before you go into the building. And and there's just a huge outcry against the the idea that you 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 don't immediately rush in. And so a lot of the science is trying to figure out like is going inside the building with your hose and putting out the fire from inside how is is that how does it compare in effectiveness to being outside and spraying in through a window and i mean that people get deep into these arguments and i i'm not sure they they can ever really i mean there's so many nuances that watching art and science people trying to to negotiate that how much are are is the science in your head when you're making those decisions or does it have to be at a tipping point where there's, like, consensus and then you can let it inform you? Definitely. When you're watching a fire, you're thinking a lot about fire behavior. Like, where is the fire going and what is it doing? And if I open this window, like, what kind of draft is going to go in through that window and, and give the fire oxygen and make it go in a direction? So, I mean, that's a fascinating—and then that's kind of a, a less controversial part of the science is uh, really— zeroing in on how fire behaves and and with these the new lightweight construction like how how do using lightweight materials affect how long we can safely be in a fire i, I mean I, I think about those kind of things every time i go to a fire 
could you pick out a couple of qualities that you see over and over again in people who choose to go into this profession? And, and then, like, what? how do you manage those personality traits? I mean, I guess a big one is just aggressiveness. Like, to be willing to run into a burning building where, where you could die, it takes a certain kind of aggressive person. And, and I found a big part of a chief job is actually kind of holding people back, like making sure they don't rush in further than is safe for them or that or risk more than the situation is worth. Like, I mean, there, there is an argument that every vacant building could have victims in it, but a terrible rundown vacant that looks like it's on risk of at risk of collapse, like you have to really weigh the chances of someone being in there versus the risk to your firefighters and 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 firefighters like I mean my department they just we're going to go into any fire unless I t- tell them not to so holding them back and may, being willing to make that decision like you know we're going to not risk too much at this fire like that's you know dealing with those kind of personalities that's a big part of my job how much of that is like holding them back in the moment like like actually saying stop or whatever the language that you would use and how much of it is actually like over time trying to educate and tame is not the right word but like impart sort of your your sense of things to to the people (laughs) who actually um have to have to sometimes rush in well i mean every time that we study a fire where firefighters died or you know it's an opportunity to talk about risk versus benefit and I mean, we spend a lot of time kind of talking about it, and I think the higher up the the chain of command you get, the more the more you feel the the the, it, the people's lives are in your hands, and you know. So I I try to I don't know I try to talk about that with my guys any chance I get. Like I I want you to be aggressive, but we also need to be safe. And here's here's how we do it. Like here are things we can do to to make sure we're safe and not taking unnecessary risks. Were you once, uh, like, riskier? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I love going into fires. And I would wait for, I, you know, I'd go in until a chief told me to come out, basically. When you're a firefighter, I mean, you're you're in charge of the lives of your coworkers or you have some effect on them. But you're, as you raise up, rise up the ranks, like, you have more and more people's lives in your hands, basically. Like, and the, the weight of that is is pretty tremendous. So it's not like I I don't I wouldn't I don't love being aggressive, but it's just my job now to to try and temper that. I'm sure you thought about sort of how being a woman in your workplace is similar to or different than maybe what you know, you've read about being a woman in other, in the workplace, in other fields. Are there actually things that women simply can't do in firefighting or are all of those things bullshit? (laughs) I don't think I would generalize it that much. I would think I would say, you know, to, to be a firefighter, there are physical standards you have to meet and kind of like how the, the military seems to be moving towards like for different jobs, setting a, a physical standard. And, like, to do this job, you need to meet the standard. Um, I mean, And women just vary so much and in, in their physical ability. Like, I wouldn't want to say there are certain things that no women can do. But, like, like me, I, I, I work really hard to be as strong as I physically can. But, you know, I'm a 5'5 five five woman, and I'm not sure 
I would pick myself to be the one climbing up on the roof with an axe to try and chop a hole in it. Like it requires a level of upper body strength that, you know, a guy with a six foot nine guy with a a big wingspan is just going to probably be better at than me. But there are some women and especially, you know, on social media, you know, you see these women firefighters from all over that are just amazingly athletic gifted women. And so I wouldn't want to, I, I feel like there are, are plenty of women that could do any anything in the fire service. What would you tell a young woman looking to start a career in firefighting now? Oh, I'd just say, you know, make a plan, figure out how you're going to get this job because they're, they're hard to get. And uh, so, you know, plan and t- take tests as many places as you can. Don't, you know, Get your paramedic license. It's a lot easier to get a firefighter job if you're also a paramedic. And then, you know, the most important thing, get as physically fit and strong as you possibly can because your your path will just be a lot easier. Uh, the stronger you are, the more easy I think it is to earn respect. Uh, Sarah, thank you so much for telling me about your job. It's been really, really fascinating. Oh, you're welcome, Allison. It was great to talk to you. That's it for this week's episode of Women in Charge. Please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. That helps more people find us. And please send feedback on the show and suggestions for guests to womenincharge@slate.com. Thanks to producers Jessica Jupiter and Cleo Levin. Thank you to Gabe Roth, editorial director of Slate Podcasts, and June Thomas, senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts. Thanks so much to Sarah Arrington, and thank you all for listening. 